Good morning. Special welcome to guests from near or far who might be staying with family for the holidays. Hello to those listening online. We're living in a transient era, aren't we? Um, A lot of travel, a lot of moving from place to place. There's difficulties with that, but there's actually a blessing in it as well, in that many of us have a hard time feeling at home. Some of us have a hard time even knowing where home is during different seasons of life. And the blessing is that actually we're meant to be living with that feeling at all times during the length of this earthly sojourn. That's, that's the phenomenon of exile that we spent time talking about this fall here at North Suburban Church. We walked through the letter of First Peter in which Peter addresses Christians and he addresses them as exiles right at the beginning of the letter. And that theme came up throughout the letter. Some of the things that we looked at um, as Peter was addressing people who were living in a world that wasn't their home and feeling like this world is not their home. Let's just retrace some of the themes that we looked at this fall, that our exile isn't an accident. When we feel displaced, when we feel out on the margins in the world, it's not an accident that we're there. God wasn't asleep at the wheel. He put us exactly where he put us for a reason. Second, how we act in exile will ultimately depend on where our hope lies. So we talked about something that we called North Shore Hope, for lack of a better word. That's the hope of a nice home and a safe neighborhood with 2.5 kids and a dog and a white picket fence, right? If we're living with that sort of hope in mind, it's going to shape our conduct in a certain way. But if we're living with the living hope that First Peter talks about at the forefront— that will shape our conduct in a different direction. Third, we talked about exile providing the opportunity to be part of a distinct community, that, that we aren't meant to uh, go about this earthly sojourn alone with all of its difficulties. Fourth, we saw that we're called to imitate Christ's resolve to suffer rather than to sin, and Peter came back to that contrast several times. Fifth, we're called to live today as if Christ might return tomorrow, and we leaned into that during the Advent season as we talked about preparing for Christ's return. And then finally, in the last verses of 1 Peter, we saw Peter's kind of summary exhortation, stand firm. When you feel out on the margins, when you feel like this world isn't your home, when you feel displaced, ostracized, excluded, stand firm. That was our exploration of 1 Peter this fall. And as I was reflecting back on that and uh, thinking about what we should do this last Sunday of 2019, There's a passage that came to mind that I want us to take a look at that felt to me like a fitting exclamation point to our exile exploration this fall. So would you pray with me uh, before we go to Hebrews 13? Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. I don't know what sort of exile experiences you've been undergoing recently. I don't know what the things are in your life that have reminded you recently that this world isn't your home. I know for some in the congregation, it's been a loss in the family, a dissolving marriage, um, a health difficulty, a diagnosis you weren't expecting that uh, recently has reminded you that this world is not your home. For others, it was uh, a, a betrayal by someone that you considered a dear friend. All of those experiences God cares about, first of all, whether they're small or big. And secondly, they all point to something bigger. Here's what I mean. 
exile, when we think of the exile in Scripture, the main way it's talked about is in reference to the time in which God's people were exiled to Babylon. 586 BC, it happened. God's people were transplanted from their homeland, the place where they felt at home, into a place that was strange, and they lamented the whole time that they were there, living in a place that wasn't their home. But that actually wasn't the first exile in Scripture. In order to understand the whole theme, we need to go back to the very first one, which is when Adam and Eve were exiled, banished from the Garden of Eden, that perfect place of paradise where they walked with their Creator in the cool of the day. They were kicked out of the garden in that first exile. And we see a pattern starting to emerge when we look at these two and other instances of exile, small and big, in Scripture, in that even our small experiences of exile, we might call them little e experiences of exile, where we feel excluded, where we feel like this world isn't our home, they point to a, a bigger exile. We might call it a capital E exile, which is the just judgment for sin, in which we're banished from God's loving presence. It happened to Adam and Eve, and then their son Cain was banished even further. And then when God's people were graciously brought into their homeland, they were exiled again when they persistently disobeyed. It points to a bigger exile, a spiritual exile, a capital E exile, a banishment from God's presence as a result of our sin. And that's a problem for us because you and I, we were born sinners, Because we were born sinners, the Bible teaches that we were born into some sort of this exile-type experience. We deserve exclusion from the God who made us and loves us. And, and, And the final result of that exile that we experience is that we are stuck, helpless to do anything about it, stuck in a realm that's ruled by sin and, and even death. The writer to the Hebrews has all of that trajectory in mind as he writes what he writes in the passage we're going to look at today in Hebrews chapter 13. If you turn there with me, Hebrews 13, you're going, to, you're going to want to be there and follow along. The writer to the Hebrews is reflecting for a moment on this exile theme in particular, one piece of it in Leviticus 16, and he sees some significance there for his readers who were Jewish believers sometime before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and there's significance in it for us as well. So, Here's how the passage kind of breaks out. There's sacrificial language throughout it. The exile theme connects to sacrifice in this passage. Um, We're going to see the right to partake, the privilege to suffer, and the opportunity to sacrifice. There's an outline in your bulletin might make it easier to follow along. The right to partake, the privilege to suffer, and the opportunity to sacrifice. We'll jump right in with verses 10 through 12, the right to partake. As I read these verses, listen for... The idea of access to God being purchased through sanctifying blood. Access to God being purchased through sanctifying blood. Hebrews 13.10 We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. There's a theme of access here, and, and it makes me think, um, <clears throat> is there anybody else that's having a, an issue lately with passwords to all the different websites and subscriptions that you have? I'm having password issues. Um, I have a family member, not to be named, who has long kept a binder about this big of all of her passwords 
Um, and for a long time, we've made fun of her for that. But now I'm starting to actually think that I maybe need to do that because every website wants a different kind of password, right? They, they want two, one of them wants uh, two special characters that are sandwiched between three different numbers and then lowercase and uppercase letters mixed in. But it can't be any version of any password you've used previously. And you have to switch it every three weeks, right? And then so I'm like, okay, that's just too much. I'm just going to reset it every time I try to go on. But then they send the reset email to an email that I don't have access to because I can't figure out the password, right? Anybody else? Am I the only one having this experience? Okay. These access issues are frustrating. We have a bigger access issue, though. We've got a problem that we uh, don't have access to God. Here's what I mean. We can't even come before him to offer him worship to offer him gifts. We can't even come to his presence for those things because of our sin. That's what the Bible has taught from beginning to end. And so before Jesus came, that problem was dealt with on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, in which sacrifices were brought to satisfy God's wrath to enable the people to have continued access to him. Um, But whereas all the other sacrifices throughout the year, most of the other sacrifices throughout the year, the, the priests were able to eat the sacrificial meat after it was sacrificed. What happened to the meat of the sacrificial animals on the Day of Atonement? Anybody know? You can call it out. What happened to the meat of the sacrificial animals on the Day of Atonement? It's taken outside the camp and burned up. Did you see that in verse 11 of our text? Uh, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside outside the camp. Those animals, their bodies were carrying the sin of the people, and so they couldn't be kept inside the camp or eaten by the priest. They had to be taken outside the camp and burned. But then we have the astounding thing that this writer says in verse 12. He basically makes a turn and says, hey, Jesus too. Jesus too. He's the sacrifice on behalf of us all. He bore our sin outside the camp so that we could be brought into the camp with access to God, the access to God that we had been denied because of our sin. You see that there? So Jesus also suffered, verse 12, outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So the writer to the Hebrews who already in this letter has said that Jesus is our true temple, our true priest bringing the sacrifices, our true sacrifice, can now say, in verse 10, that Jesus is also our true altar. The altar from which we get to partake day after day after day, which is a pretty astounding thing, that we can partake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ordinary believers in him, not part of any priestly class. That's something that even the priestly class, those closest to God in the old covenant, couldn't do. And what gives us that right? What gives us that right is that just like the blood of those animals was splashed against the altar in the most holy place on the Day of Atonement, Jesus' blood ran down that wood on Calvary from his head, from his hands, from his side, from his feet, for you and for me to make atonement, to reconcile us to God, to allow us to have access to his presence. Think about that for a moment with me, that moment on that tree as Jesus hung there. Think about the dimensions of exile that Jesus was experiencing at Golgotha, right? He was experiencing physical exile. He's quite literally outside the city gate, crucified in a trash heap. 
He's also experiencing social exile, excluded from his people. He was being shamed, mocked, marginalized, demeaned, abused. And we should pause there for a moment just to say that if any of those descriptive words describe a situation that you have experienced, there's a word here for you that your Savior did too. But none of that mockery, exclusion, actually constituted the worst of Jesus' exile on that cross, did it? As bad as that was, it was all little e exile. On that cross, while Jesus was experiencing human exclusion and, and physical exclusion from the camp, from the city, he was experiencing something far worse, capital E exile, removal from the presence of God, something he had never experienced before. He was... <clears throat> suffering the sanction for covenant breakers, even though that he was the only covenant keeper. He was experiencing what we deserved to experience in our place. That's why Jesus can be good news for us, not only in our little e feelings of exile, when circumstances come up that make us feel like this world isn't our home, but also in the big e sort of exile that we all have a problem with, that we've been separated from God. He can be good news for both because he didn't just subject himself to little e exile. He also subjected himself to big e exile on that cross as he experienced exile from the loving presence of God the Father on our behalf. All this might seem overly theological, but I actually think it's really practical, especially going into a new year. Here's what I mean. Many of you are making resolutions in the next couple days, starting to think about that. That's great. Someone here might be crafting their resolutions along the lines of, I'm going to really earn God's favor this year. I, I really need to get God on my side this year. I'm sure he's displeased with me in the way I acted this year. This year, I'm really going to become a better person so that God will be pleased with me in 2020. If that's you, stop. You will never be good enough to earn access to God. You will never do enough good to outweigh the bad that you've done. Your problem isn't that you are a bad person who needs to become better. Your problem is that you don't have the password. You're locked out. You don't have access to the God who made you and who loves you, the God whose favor you desire. You're stuck in a place of exile. I'm stuck in a place of exile from birth. The only solution, the only answer is not to create resolutions to make ourselves better people. The only answer is if somebody has to be a perfect person because they need to deserve no exile of their own, but somebody willingly goes into that realm of exile, the place where sin and death reign. Somebody goes into that place and somehow finds a way to come out, to emerge from it, to escape from exile, to have an exodus from that exile. And as they do, as they emerge from that place of exile, they grab you and me by the arm and yank us out with them. That's our only hope. And that's exactly the good news of what Jesus did for us. He died on that cross, entering into the realm of exile, ruled by sin and death. And when he rose from the dead, once again, exiting that place and bringing with him those of us who are in him. I love reflecting on that good news. But then... As I'm reflecting on that good news in this text, the author makes an unexpected twist in verses 13 and 14. Here I am reflecting on this good news. I don't know about you. I'm thinking, 
man, that's awesome. We get to be in the camp because Jesus left the camp to go outside on our behalf. So now we never have to experience that outside the camp type uh, feeling to the, to the nth degree like we deserve. <clears throat> but then the author says, therefore let us go to him outside the camp. Go outside the camp. I thought the good news was that we don't. Let's look at that. The privilege to suffer, verses 13 and 14. Follow along with me as I read. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city to come. Again, go outside the camp. Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to go outside the camp when the good news is that uh, we were just celebrating that we don't have to go outside the camp. We can be in the camp, right? Outside the camp is shame. Outside the camp is exclusion. Outside the camp is even death. We escaped that. Why go outside the camp to all that? I think the language is intentional here, too. Uh, it doesn't say, let's go outside the camp. It's not so bad out there. It's not as bad as you think, after all. It's, no, there's reproach outside the camp. It's just as bad as you think it is, and that's why you're called to go. Um, but why? Let's clarify also for a moment as we think about entering into that place of exile with Jesus that our exile is not the same as Jesus' exile. For one thing, we've already seen that his was a capital E exile. And because he did that, none of us have to experience capital E exile, only little e exile. But secondly, his exile was redemptive. For others, ours never will be. Despite the differences, though, there's overlap between his exile and ours. There are some similarities. One is that part of the pain that he was experiencing on that cross was mockery, was exclusion, was rejection, which are things that we experience as well in our own little e exile here on this earth. So let's return to the question again. Why would we subject ourselves to that, that mockery, that exclusion, that outside the camp type of experience if we don't have to, if, if uh, if the right has been purchased for us to stay in the camp? I think the answer is in the text, in two little words that are easy to overlook. You see it there, verse 13? Therefore, let us go to him. Let us go to him. I think that's the answer. I think the answer is that the only reason we would leave the camp is because we want to be with him. Look at the movements that the writer to the Hebrews calls us to. There's four different times, at least four, in the letter to the Hebrews, the movements that we're called to. Uh, we're called to enter into the promised land, a promised rest. That's, that's moving inside the camp and inside the camp further. We're called to enter into the true sanctuary where Christ, our forerunner, has gone before us. That's moving into the camp. We're called to approach the high priest and throne to God's right hand in heaven. That's moving into the camp. And then we have this one. Go to him outside the camp. It seems like it's the odd one out. It's different. It's not an inward motion. It's an outward motion. But then when we reflect on it further, there's actually a similarity between all four, including this last one. And the similarity is that all four are movements toward him, toward Christ. Whether he's in, whether he's out, we're going to him. Sometimes doesn't it feel like that? Don't we experience that in our walk with God? Sometimes when you're following God's call in your life, doesn't it feel like, ah, I'm at rest now. I'm experiencing peace I answered God's call, and everything feels right as a result. Anybody ever had that experience? Yeah. But have you also had the opposite experience? Or maybe I should say the inverse experience, that 
you're answering God's call, you know you're answering God's call and doing what he wants you to do, but all it feels like is that you've been sent into the wilderness and you're surrounded by wolves. Anybody ever feel that experience? Yeah. God at times calls us to both. We can know that we are in his will, that we're going the right direction, not based on whether our circumstances are resolving in such a way that creates peace and ease and comfort in our lives. Rather, we can know if we're headed in the right direction if we're going to where we're going in order to be with Christ there. In other words, the question is, where's Jesus? I want to be where he is. You remember it when, uh, so those of you who were in a youth group while you were a teenager, what did you do? You, You always try to, you find a way to finagle your way toward that special someone when it's time to hold hands in prayer, right? You're going to make sure you find a way to get next to them. Or you went to a concert, your favorite artist, you stayed after for an hour in the cold to get to meet them. There are times in our lives where there's somebody that we would just, at all costs, I'm going to be in that person's presence. I'm going to be with them no matter what it takes. And, and when we are seeing Christ most clearly, that's what our drive to be with him looks like, isn't it? That we'll do whatever it takes to be there, even if it means leaving the camp to go out in the wilderness and be with him. Very practically speaking, inside the camp feels like approval from others, right? Outside the camp feels like the disapproval of others, or at least being willing to experience the disapproval of others. So that's a question, practically, for you and for me uh, in this section of our text, the second section of our text. In our drive to be with Christ, have we left behind the pursuit of others' acceptance yet? Have we done that? It's hard to do, and if that feels like too high of a cost to leave behind the desire for the acceptance of others, verse 14, I think, is the reminder that we need to hear. It's a reminder I need to hear. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. If you've been uh, getting a whole lot of new followers on Instagram or new friends on Facebook lately, and you're just feeling really good about yourself, feeling like you've got a lasting city now, you don't. If you've just been getting praised by your boss here at year's end and you're feeling really good about yourself and you're feeling like you've got a lasting city here now, you don't. There's only one lasting city. It's the city to come. It's not here on earth. Maybe an analogy that's helpful um, is that even the best of this world, even those times in life where we were most basking in the world's approval, even the times when it feels like everything's going right, even those times here on this earth are really just like Indiana. Here's what I mean. Some of you are laughing because you've heard this, you've heard the joke, right? That Indiana, but it's not really a joke, it's kind of serious. Like, Indiana is not anyone's destination, right? It's the place you go through to get to your destination, isn't it? Right? Some of you Indiana natives are offended. Sorry. But even in the best times in this world, it's really like Indiana. This world is just a stopping off point to the real destination. Right? We must not grow to start feeling like this is home. We have to always remember that this is not our lasting city. Um, we're headed to a different one. I'm not trying to minimize how hard it can be to follow God's call to leave behind this earthly city that's easy to see and touch uh, in favor of a heavenly one that we can't see and touch yet. That's hard. Yet, 
None of us has called to leave anything behind uh, like Abraham was called to leave behind what he left behind in pursuit of a lasting city, right? And forget Abraham. Think about the Christmas story we just celebrated. None of us has left behind what Jesus Christ left behind on that first Christmas. Do you think about that this Christmas? That lots of babies in world history have grown up to be kings, but only one king has become a baby. Here's Jesus Christ worshipped, the Son of God worshipped by angels 24-7. He leaves that to come down and live an experience in which he needs people to pick him up and transport him from place to place because he can't walk or even crawl yet. He leaves the worship of angels 24-7 for the experience in which he has to nurse at someone's breast in order to just stay alive. He leaves the 24-7 worship of angels uh, for an experience in which for the first duration of his life, he's unable to communicate besides crying, right? He left security for insecurity. And we join him outside the camp when we leave behind our security to respond to God's call on our lives. So summary of this second point is that it is a privilege to suffer, but there's a qualification there. It's a privilege to suffer if our suffering is motivated by the drive to be with Christ. It's not suffering for suffering's sake. It's not suffering to earn a gold star in God's eyes. It's actually just the, the opposite of that. It's, it's that we're so grateful that we've already earned the gold star, so to speak, <clears throat> in God's eyes. We've already gotten his favor, that we've already gotten his approval, his smile looking down on us. We're so grateful for that, that we just want to go to him, even if it means going outside the camp where there's mockery and exclusion. Really just scratching the surface here on this text. Remember, there's sacrificial language going on. Uh, first part was about how we got access to the altar. The second part was how we join Christ at the place of sacrifice. And now in this third and final section, we look at offering our own sacrifices to him. Let's take a look at verses 15 and 16, the opportunity to sacrifice. Take a look there as I read at the idea of praises being offered through our lips and through our lives. Lips and lives. It says, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. If a commercial is going to work for me, like if I'm going to be moved by a commercial for a product, it has to involve words and action, probably you too, right? So if... If there was a commercial that was just somebody speaking for 30 seconds about a product, telling me facts about it over a black screen, that wouldn't be very compelling to me. However, on the flip side, some of these commercials nowadays are, go to the other end of the spectrum. So I saw one uh, recently in which halftime of a football game, I'm just watching this commercial comes on, and it's so visually compelling, and the storyline is so moving. In 30 seconds, I'm weeping there in my living room at halftime of this football game about this commercial. And I was like, this is, this is an incredible job they did on this commercial. So I go to tell my wife about it, and she said, well, what was it for? I was like, not sure. <laughs> it, the story wasn't connected to the product in any way, right? A lot of action, but they didn't give me any words to hang this product on. I don't remember what it was besides the logo flashing up at the end, which I can't recall, right? So <clears throat> it requires both words and action. There's something analogous uh, to the praise of a product and, and our praise of God, namely that 
the praise that we're called to bring to God has to involve both words and action, both lips and lives. You see that here? The language of sacrifice is here, verses 15 and 16. So the beginning of 15 and the end of 16. So both of these verses are talking about sacrifice that we offer to God. And the author has been making the point throughout this letter that the time of animal sacrifices is over. So what's the sacrifice now? The author's saying it's lips and lives. That's our sacrifice. Verse 15, lips. It says, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And maybe what comes to your mind first, what comes to my mind first is, is uh, singing praise songs to God. And that's certainly part of what's involved, but it's also speaking about God. It's speaking about God with unbelievers, with believers. Um, it's a hundred opportunities that we have to do this every day, to offer the sacrifice of praise with the fruit of our lips when we just open our eyes to what God's doing in the world around us and we just name it as we see it. But it's not just lips, it's also lives. That's the part that's talked about in verse 16. Sacrifice language is there well as well. And what's the sacrifice in verse 16? Doing good and sharing what you have. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. I can't help but think, uh, or wonder at least, that if some of the debates, the intramural debates we have within Christianity about uh, evangelism, telling people about the good news about Jesus, and social action might be cleared up, or we might come to greater understanding between these two camps with a more robust reflection here on these two verses, verses 15 and 16, because the author of the Hebrews doesn't have a conception for a one or the other type of offering praise to God with our lives, right? It's lips and lives, and so for the, the hardcore evangelism camp that is really wary of social action, the author of the Hebrews says in verse 16, well, part of the sacrifice we're called to offer is to do good and to share what we have. But then to the hardcore social action camp who doesn't often bring up Jesus or the reason for the hope that we have, the author of the Hebrews says in verse 15, no, 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 the part of the sacrifice of praise that we're called to offer is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. It's not a choice in the mind of the author of the Hebrews, it's both and. There's a question we haven't answered yet here, though. Um, all this acknowledging Christ with our lips, doing good, sharing what we have, why is it called sacrifice in this text? We know it's not the reason it's, what's not the reason it's called sacrifice is because we're somehow earning God's favor through it, right? That can't be it. Our, our favor with God has been purchased already by Jesus' sacrifice and no further sacrifice is required. Maybe it's called sacrifice here because sometimes it feels like sacrifice to us, doesn't it? Do you always want to offer up praise to God with your lips? I know I don't, especially when things are going, are going wrong. Do you always want to do good? I don't. Do you always want to share what you have? I don't. So maybe it just feels like a sacrifice, just like in the Old Testament when I think about when people were giving up the first and best of their flocks as a sacrifice to God, when that flock was their college fund and their 401k and their uh, ability to provide for their next month's bills all in one. Uh, that must have felt like a sacrifice. It, it, it hurt a little bit. Sometimes our sacrifices of lips and lives uh, feel like that too. I think it would be a mistake, though, to say, you know what, this is right. I, I, I need to, in 2020, really just up my game, getting serious about 
getting serious about sacrificing to God, praise with my lips and life. Sunday mornings, I need to get here more often on Sunday mornings. And when I'm here on Sunday mornings, I need to give more. I need to be more engaged. That's what I'm going to do with this. Do all those things. But I want to make sure we don't miss a word in verse 15 that's key. It says, through him then let us how often offer up a sacrifice of praise? What's it say? Continually, right? Continually. How could that be possible, to be continually offering up sacrifices of praise with our lips and lives? It's possible when we realize that all of life is worship for all of us. We're, we're created as worshiping beings, and we can't help but worship at all times, 24-7, with our lips and with our lives. The only question is, what is getting our worship with our lips and our lives at any given moment? Um, so the aim of the Christian life, then, is to be continually offering up a sacrifice of praise to the one true God with our lips and with our lives. So our big idea today is this. Let's worship on the margins as we join Christ in enduring reproach there. Each piece of this kind of reflects on something that we looked at here in our text. Let's worship, that's lips and lives type worship, on the margins, that's the outside the camp type of language, as we join Christ, joining him wherever he goes, in enduring reproach that's being mocked, it's suffering, enduring reproach that exists outside the camp. I think it's easy to exaggerate what I'm about to say as we close or to be alarmist about it. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I do think it's probably true that our world around us is becoming increasingly hostile to those of us who follow Jesus. Right? Um, most of us are experiencing just a little bit more pain as a result of following Jesus than we were even five or ten years ago. Right? What helps is to set our eyes on our heavenly city, the one that's to come. Some of us have found that when our eyes are fixed on our true home, the pain of the suffering that exists in this temporary city has a way of losing its sting, losing its bite. However, I want to conclude 2019 with a reminder that our biggest exile problem was never that we were excluded from the neighborhood block party because we were a Christian, right? That never will be our biggest exile problem. Our biggest exile problem is that we were banished from the loving presence of God, justly so, as a result of our sin. But Jesus went and experienced that exile, exile with a capital E, so that you and I will never, ever have to. That's why we're eager to praise him. That's why we're willing to go outside the camp even, to go into exile with a little e to go be with him. So friends, if you're here this morning and you still haven't escaped from that large, exile, large e exile, if you're listening to what's being said here in the word and, and you're thinking, you know, I haven't actually, don't think I've ever broken out of that realm where sin and death rule. I still feel like I am in chains to my sin. I don't feel like I've ever been able to break free from that. I don't think I've ever experienced this sort of freedom from exile that you're talking about. You can experience that even today. Grab myself, grab the person that brought you, talk to somebody before you even leave here. You can experience freedom from the worst of exile by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. But for those who have experienced that, 
For those who are only experiencing little e-exile now as a result of being in Christ, let's worship together on the margins as we join Christ in enduring reproach there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son so that at great cost to himself, he might willingly allow himself to be dragged outside the camp to be sacrificed on our behalf, suffering the exclusion, the mockery, the rejection of the community, but first and foremost, the banishment from your loving presence that we deserved. Thank you that he took it in our place so that we will never, ever have to face that, so that there be no condemnation now for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, as you call us to step with you into the little-y type of exile, uh, the sort that just involves mockery, rejection here on this earth, help us to do so faithfully, joyfully, and together, arm-in-arm in community as we walk into 2020 together as a church family. In Jesus' name, amen.